Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you'll need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Friday, the 13th edition of the Fightful MMA podcast. I am super excited to be joined uh, by Reed Kuhn. He is an ESPN insider. He's a science nerd, a self-proclaimed science nerd. He's the author of Fightnomics, this book right here uh, that I am lucky to be in, and I'm also on the back there, but this book is you know, quote unquote, the Bible. This thing has been on more flights with me than you could possibly imagine because I continue to read things that I forget. I, you know, bring up Reed's book and I take a look at it. But Reed Coon by far has the most interesting feed in MMA. Reed, what's going on, my man? Uh, always busy, but uh, always happy to join you for sure. Um, I always like talking MMA with you. Uh, it's been a while. I'm now on the West Coast, so living the Silicon Valley dream lifestyle, but. I cannot get away from this MMA bug that I have. I think you understand where that comes from. So always excited to chat it up with a, a fellow fan. Well, you know, the thing is, though, it's, MMA is a bug. It's a virus. And once you get bitten with it, especially if you get a chance, I tell people all the time, if you think you like it on television, if you think you like it on your computer screen, you got to go see an event live. Because if you see the event live, and it's not just the energy in the crowd, it's physically seeing two human beings, male or female, do what they do inside of a cage. And when you start understanding the nuances, you get bit by that bug and it stays in your system forever. Yeah. And, and in fact, it's interesting. You bring up the book. I mean, it's now been a couple of years, but the, the first chapter or two uh, is not really about MMA. It's about fighting in general, combat sports in general, martial arts, um, just the history of it, not just within our own species, but even before that. So this whole combat sports thing, it's very intriguing from so many different angles. Um, and I think that's what brings a lot of people in from different places. Uh, so there is a lot of different different ways to appreciate the sport. Now, in terms of how you got involved with the sport, I mean, there's there's a bunch of different ways, different angles we can take this. But in terms of a guy like yourself, you call yourself a science nerd. Uh, you're an analytics guy. You're a numbers guy. 
What was it about the UFC or mixed martial arts in general that said, hey, you know what? I can do more with this. I really like this, and I can look at it from this angle that not many other people are doing. Yeah, it happened uh, fairly naturally. I just went to an event. Uh, Ranger Up, the apparel company, brought me along. They were sponsoring a guy. I'm hanging out with fighters for the first time. As a fan, I had seen a number of events, and I was just brought along one night. Um, so here I am behind the scenes. I'm hanging out with the matchmakers and the, the staff and the broadcasters. Um, and I'm asking the questions that I would normally ask as a consultant or analytics guy, asking how often does this happen? Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever you know, changed this angle just to um, affect this trend? And no one had answers for that. They were just like, you know, we pop up a circus tent every week and we hope for the best. We throw people in there. Um, and that wasn't very satisfactory. Now, I, from a scientific standpoint, I came from a prior job where I was actually analyzing peak performance in humans for the military. So there was a, a scientific angle there where um, I was very interested in what makes some people better than others physically. What is it about their size, their genetics, um, their metabolism, things like that, uh, even their their thinking, their intellect, their neurophysiology. So um, there was a lot more that I, when I was looking at two people in a cage, I was thinking about all these things. It was just bubbling up. So I went looking for data and there wasn't any data until just about at that time, fight metric had come out with their system, their hierarchy of breaking a fight down into quantifiable elements and started looking at that and tearing it apart and making graphs. And um, the rest is history. I mean, it just kind of snowballed from there. It turned into consulting to fighters um, becoming part of a management agency, writing articles. And then eventually I said, it would just be really satisfying to write a book. And so put this all in one place and then move on um, and see what comes next. And like I said, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you can catch Reed online at Fightnomics, especially on Twitter. But the book is fantastic. It's just, it's just, it inundates my brain with so much information that I have often have to pause, put it down, sort of digest the information, go back and reread what I just read, perhaps even if it's just one paragraph. Uh, there are a lot of things that I use in the book when I do my commentary for, or sorry, excuse me, my play-by-play, whether it's for Titan FC, whether it's for Ryzen. Um, and there's things that, that the book will always pop into my mind. And, and, and you know, I can read the book over and over again, but there are a few things that always come up. Number one is about reach. Number one is obviously about heavyweights. They're moving a lot more mass than a guy weighing or girl weighing 125 pounds. That's a fact. One thing that stood out to me, though, that, that always comes up, Reed, is the clinch. And the ability of the clinch being a high ratio way to get that takedown. It's not necessarily a single leg or a double leg, but the clinch is extremely important. Has that trend continued in mixed martial arts? Do you know? It's a good point. I haven't refreshed that particular number. Um, but yeah, when I'm consulting with guys, we do differentiate whether or not takedowns are initiated from a distance or after contact. And then once you are in contact, is it is the uh, point of imbalance the upper body? Is it more like a judo throw or uh, or is it from the legs. So it's upper body, lower body in the clinch, or is it from a distance shooting? So the fact that we can take a takedown and break it into three very different categories is just, it's very interesting. You know, you can sit there and just count things watching a fight. And as long as you organize the information well, you will learn something. And what we learned is that shooting from a distance is not a very effective way to take someone down because so many of these guys have a great wrestling background. Um, But when you're in the clinch and you're allowed to strike, you now have two different weapons to employ at the same time. You can go for a takedown, you can throw elbows, um, and it makes it a lot harder to defend. And so when we're looking and game planning uh, an opponent and you force them to defend on multiple fronts, 
their overall defense can't be at peak on both fronts. They're going to have to make a choice. Are they worried about the inside elbows? Are they worried about the takedown? Um, it it's just becomes interesting strategically to game plan with a fighter and think about that element instead of just saying that this guy has, you know, whatever percentage takedown defense, it's a lot more nuanced than that. Um, and ideally we even go one step beyond that. And we, we start looking at tape and what was it about the lower body clinch takedowns that were working? Uh, maybe it was trips. Um, th- that's when technique comes in and the coaches need to really take a, a far more detailed, um, look at it. But the fact that we have the data, just it allows you to answer some of these basic questions and you always find something interesting. Of course. I mean, after reading that chapter specifically, it kind of changed my mindset. And I was paying more attention to when, you know, the, the two fighters are actually engaged in distance, whether somebody was setting up a takedown. Um, the one thing I want to tell people right now is if you ever get a chance to scroll through you know, read stream uh, on Twitter, uh, you'll notice certain things. I want to ask you one specific thing, especially with that Dominic Cruz fight. Uh, I think, you, you know, you know I'm not, it's not verbatim, but you basically said, look, he's handing this belt over to Cody Garbrandt. He's forgetting the fact that he's a wrestler. When you look at fights like that, um, are there situations in your own mind where you're like, you know what, the number said he should have did this, or were there also examples where you're like, well, the number said this, but this went right off the book here. Yeah, a lot. Um, And I will be the first to concede that there's a lot more complexity than I can see in my own numbers or see from my couch where I'm watching a fight. Um, And coaches and fighters themselves are game planning to a level of detail that is far more specific than simply employ wrestling versus not employ wrestling. So there was probably a lot more going on there. But um, clearly, he was, Dominic Cruz was getting hit from the start. And his defining metric that really uh, sets him above everyone else was his ability to not get hit from a distance. Um, He had this very unorthodox style of striking, lots of combinations coming in different angles very quick. Um, But if someone finds his timing, the same thing was happening over and over. And you know what they say about the definition of insanity. So he, he just kept going in doing the same thing. It was not working and he wasn't switching the game plan, which you would expect from a guy with his fight IQ. Um, now, whether or not he tried and simply failed and just had to wait it out, that's a, that's a separate question. Uh, but the numbers do say that he is very successful when he uses wrestling. I mean, this is a guy that, you know, we talk about a super fight with Mighty Mouse Johnson. That fight did happen. It happened in Washington, D.C. I was sitting right there, um, and he wrestled him very, very effectively. Dominic Cruz just owned Mighty Mouse on the mat. So um, the fact that he did not employ any of that, uh, his base of wrestling, which he's very proud about, was very surprising. Um, he, he was 0 for 7 technically on takedowns, I think, uh, when I looked up the stats after the fight. Cruz did, I think, get him to the mat briefly twice. Fight metric really only records a takedown if you get him down and keep him there. So something else happens after that takedown. Both times, I think, essentially nothing happened. Garbrandt either immediately got back up or got back you know, after a second or two. So um, he wasn't credited with any. So 0 for 7 is rough. Uh, but there was, I think, one whole round where there wasn't even an attempt, um, which is unusual. And so, you know, when you're skipping over one of your greatest strengths in a five-round fight, um, and you know that one of the other things that differentiates you is your elusiveness, and you're getting picked apart early on, um, I just didn't see a lot of adjustment there, and I was surprised by that. So, I mean, props to Cody Garbrandt. He seems to have uh, cracked the equation there. Now looking at Cody Garbrandt and that performance uh, and looking at his numbers before the fight and how the numbers now are slightly going to change. Obviously, it's one fight is, is a small sample size, in my opinion. But when you look at a guy like Cody Garbrandt, 
when you reanalyze what's up next for him, because it could be TJ Dillashaw, which is an absolutely – that's a fantasy fight in my mind. How hard would it be to break that one down? Or is it simply you just saying, it's not that difficult, Joe? Numbers, 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 checkmark, X, checkmark, X. Um, I, I would love if it was always that simple. Uh, but we always know that there's some noise in the system. There is variance. Uh, there are unknowns. Uh, so it's hard to predict with any perfection. Uh, I'll be the first to admit that. Uh, but that matchup does blow my mind. I think it would be awesome for a number of reasons. Um, and what what made Cruz interesting was, you know, he's a dual threat. He was a very elusive striker, um, but an excellent wrestler. I think TJ Dillashaw is a better striker, um, maybe not as elusive, but he's better offensively, and he's a good wrestler. So I think Dillashaw might be the better matchup against Garbrandt. Um, when Dillashaw fought Cruz, I was in the, the camp that thought that Dillashaw squeaked that one out. I thought he won. Um, he did more damaging uh, blows. Um, and the Cruz style of kind of the, the lighter strikes, but point striking, I didn't think was as, as effective. And, and after the fight, obviously, there was a big difference in what they looked like. Um, but that aside, I, I yeah, the Dillashaw fight is awesome. Um, I will reevaluate the numbers, obviously, after every fight and refresh what the metrics are. But that's an aggregate sense. Um, to some extent, you have to correct for where a fight occurs. One proxy for that is simply where in the fight order on the card it occurs. If you're in the main event, chances are you're fighting an opponent that is of higher skill. Therefore, those metrics are worth a little bit more in the long run. Uh, but what we present in the Uber tail of the tape is simply what is the average performance of this guy? But over the course of a career, you will see very clear skills that stand out and define someone um, the precision of Anderson Silva, for example, the dominant wrestling of Daniel Cormier or, or even a Chael Sonnen, um, those things will stand out. So when it comes down to this matchup, I'll look at the numbers again, but off the top of my head, I do believe that Dillashaw is a little bit more effective offensively, um, whereas Cruz is so hard to hit, and yet Garbrandt found a way to do it. And therefore, when you take that element out, all of a sudden, Cruz was not a very good striker to face that night. Uh, or to go in the ring that night. So um, I, I'm very interested to see what Dillashaw does. I know you mentioned Anderson Silva as being you know, an extremely precise striker, and that's what he wants to be if he doesn't want to mess around and play around and, and actually realizes, hey, you know what? I'm in a fight, and if I choose to finish it, I could actually finish it. Uh, I'm actually impressed with Amanda Nunes, and you, there was a tweet that you threw out there uh, with that matchup versus Ronda Rousey and how the striking was just so much in favor for Amanda Nunes. And when I had made my prediction on Fightful, um, you know, there were people that were like, what are you talking about? I said, listen, if this fight's going to end, it's going to end early. It's going to end with Amanda Nunes doing the exact same thing she did to Misha Tate, break her nose. She's going to bust up Ronda Rousey. She's going to hurt her. 48 seconds later, uh, those are the types of fights I put a smile on my face. I look, okay, I got, I got that one right. There are times when I look at a fight, uh, I look at some of your numbers, I kind of use my own uh, mentality in terms of how the styles of the two fights or two fighters sort of match up with each other. And I'm completely wrong, Reed. Like, let's be honest, I could be completely out to lunch. You can't predict the future. If we could, we'd be picking some numbers and you and I wouldn't be talking here. We'd be somewhere on a beach uh, having some pina coladas enjoying life. But Amanda Nunes, how impressed are you with her level of striking now in comparison to what it was before? Or do you see her as someone that's always been that precise and that powerful? Yeah, the numbers showed that she was not only very precise, but also she was able to maintain that accuracy while being very aggressive. And that's harder to do. So it's easy to be a counter striker and have higher accuracy, baiting people in, 
landing that shot versus initiating, uh, creating entrances, pushing people backwards and landing shots while they're trying to defend. That is more difficult and that is more impressive. And that's what Amanda Nunes uh, displayed in her statistics. So she rated very highly. And there's a number of different ways to show this graphically. Um, for one, the, the pure metric of 48% distance powerhead accuracy. I mean, that's twice the UFC average uh, about. Um, I, it's tied, I think, for the highest accuracy in the entire UFC, at least going into that fight. Now maybe it might be the highest. Uh, so she was already doing this before the Rousey fight. And then you look at Rousey on paper, and she has one of the worst head-striking defenses in the division, if not the entire UFC, especially given the fact that she was in a championship-caliber fights her whole career. So champions usually have good defense. That is one common characteristic. That was not the case with Ronda Rousey and her striking. So this was a perfect storm. I mean, it was probably the most extreme case of a striking mismatch that I've seen on paper in a title fight. Um, so you had this wild card of, okay, but Ronda Rousey is still probably the most dangerous person once she grabs you. Um, so that was still a factor to consider, but all fights started at distance. And Amena Nunez on paper had a massive, massive advantage when that bell rang. That, listen... Uh, and I don't want to get overly technical, uh, but Sean Ross Sapp and I, managing editor here at Fightful.com, when we spoke about the fight afterwards, the one thing that kept sticking out to my mind, I know it has nothing to do with numbers in general, but just the way Amanda was throwing her right, it wasn't designed, like when most people are, are taught to throw a right, it comes off of a jab and it comes straight at you, you turn the shoulder in, you protect your chin. The way she was throwing it was almost it was it wasn't a cross, it wasn't a hook, it wasn't an overhand, it was a combination. It was designed with a trajectory to go over, you know, over the actual um the jab that potentially would be a defense and it'd come over. When you look at your stats yourself and you look at the way um Fighters strike, uh, obviously, because there's power strikes. Or, you know, there's strikes that are considered numbers, like the jab. There's the power punches, which are the cross and the hook. Can you look at that punch from a minute and, and label it strictly as a power punch, or could you break that down even more and say this is a different type of strike than anyone else is throwing, or does that even matter? Unfortunately, in the data, we just differentiate from uh, the position they're in, the target of the strike, and then the strength of the strike and whether or not it landed or missed. So those four elements essentially are are how we categorize each and everything that occurs when it comes to striking. Um, The nuances of what type of strike, an uppercut versus a hook versus an overhand, they're all going to count as a distance power head strike. Unfortunately, we don't differentiate left and right. We don't differentiate even an elbow strike from a distance uh, technically. Um, So Fightmetric did early on look at some of those nuances. They did try to factor in what, um, what type of weapon was being used. And they found that uh, from a predictive standpoint or from a descriptive standpoint in terms of what happened in the fight, it wasn't as useful. Um, so they actually went away from that and they they stuck with a more basic system that was easier to sustain, really, to maintain. Um, so that, that type of nuance is why guys like you will never disappear, even if we have tons of data. Um, now, I will say that the future, <laughs> the future of using sensors in the gloves is very bright. So not only are sensors in the gloves going to tell us the volume of strikes, whether or not they hit and landed on the opponent uh, left or right hand, they will actually show trajectory. So you can actually, um, essentially the machine learning will figure out when you're throwing an uppercut versus an overhand with the same hand that might land with the same power. 
And that trajectory is, is important after the fact for a number of reasons and for training reasons. And you could also essentially learn how to throw the perfect strike by using these sensors. So um, way down the road, we might actually be able to differentiate the, the type of punch, you know, at the level that you're talking about in terms of trajectory, which is very important from a tactical perspective. Um, from a statistical one where we are right now, we simply don't have that level of granularity in the data. Um, but I, I think that it might actually be coming. We're still a few years away. Um, products like Hixo, this is a, a Canadian startup uh, that recently commercialized glove sensors. Um, these guys, uh, that's, that is part of their roadmap, their vision. Um, they're not just showing you how fast your fist got traveling through the air, which is interesting in, it, in itself. They're also eventually going to be showing what path it took on the way because of the accelerometers in the glove um, to figure out, did it go over the defense? Like you said, did it go under the defense? Did it have to go through the defense? These are important things when really looking at the detail of a fight. We don't have it yet, but I do believe it is coming. Oh, that's going to be absolutely fantastic when you look at that. Just imagine what you could do. Sorry, my, my brain is now going into video replay perspective and all kinds of stuff that you could you do that from a television perspective. Um, one of the things that in the book, uh, Fightnomics, that you broke down was reach. Uh, and in terms of when there is a disparity between small distance, medium distance, large distance, and when you start looking at someone that's got a reach advantage of three inches, five inches, seven inches, that will play pretty much... Um, big time in the fight, if I may say, and pardon the pun there. Um, I'm looking at your numbers for the, um, I think it's a Sergio Pettis fight and John Moraga fight, and I notice a question mark, or sorry, a, a check mark next to the two-inch height advantage or two-inch reach advantage for Sergio Pettis. Now, when you put your check marks there, my brain thinks it's only a two-inch reach advantage. Do you not want maybe a three- to five-inch reach advantage before you start looking at someone and saying, hey, you know what? This guy's got a serious reach advantage. He's a good striker. This is something to pay attention to. Or is it just simply a matter of, hey, you know what? He's got this much of reach advantage. He gets that check mark or her? Yeah, when it comes to the Uber tail of the tape, which, of course, was invented. If anybody reads the book, it was invented after a conversation with you um, that I came up with that graphic. Uh, the check marks and Xs are somewhat automatic. Um, we crank out this graphic based on the underlying data. A lot of the times, even there are some rounding issues. You know, they, it looks like the same number, but really it's just decimal differences and one gets a check. Sometimes we manually override that. Um, but you're right. When it comes to reach, uh, the magnitude of the effect is important to the, the actual effect so the, the, or the magnitude of the difference. So two inches is probably my cutoff for even what would be a recognizable reach advantage. Less than that, I would say it's negligible. Um, so you're right. A two inch probably not deserving of really saying that someone has a major reach advantage. Um, when you get into that five inch, uh, we've seen instances of a 12 inch reach advantage a couple times. Um, Neil Magny just, just fought, uh, Johnny Hendricks. That was a 12 inch reach deferential. Uh, oh roughly. my God. Was it 12 um, inches? I didn't even notice that. Wow. Yeah, it, I think, I think they actually changed his Magny's reach on the tail of the tape this time. So my database is constantly getting refreshed. Um, fight metric constantly re updates those numbers. So I think, on TV, it came out as an 11. Um, on paper, we had it as a 12 going in. So that is a massive reach differential. I mean, that's a, a Stefan Strube versus Pat Berry type situation um, where you've got a giant versus a, a guy that's smaller than average or a John Jones versus a Daniel Cormier, similar, 12-inch reach advantage, I think, in that situation. So um, those have a major effect on what you can do because it's not just your wingspan 
um, you have to think about it in multiple dimensions. You know, the range advantage that you have is kind of like a, a sphere around your body. It's everything that you can hit and it takes up a lot of volume. You can just simply control a lot more space in the cage uh, by having that type of range. Um, but when, when uh, you look at the tail of the tape, we did try to break it down very simply to present it to the readers in terms of what is a reach advantage and what is the potential effect. We corrected for other factors, at least other basic factors like age and stance when it comes to the tail of the tape. So uh, the fact that a two-inch reach advantage is a check mark, you're right. That's about the cutoff for where I would even consider it a real advantage. Um, beyond that, that's where, that's where it starts getting interesting. Um, I had a conversation with Faraz Zahabi. Uh, I'm going to say this specific conversation might have been about a year or two ago. And we had, we had spoken about reach itself. And we had discussed that, you know, from a 3-inch, 5-inch, 7-inch, 10-inch, 12-inch. Uh, he said, yes, reach is important because it does determine distance. It does determine exactly what a fighter can do. But one thing he always talks about is, don't forget, Joe, it's actually harder for a fighter to punch down with his jab than it is for him to punch straight or up. And I said, well, I got to talk to Reed about this because I don't think that makes sense. But you're you're an elite level coach, elite level instructor for us. I, I could understand what you're saying. It, it, have you been, been able to certain or perhaps ascertain with some of the numbers that, because Stefan Strew is a prime example. He's the tallest fighter in the UFC ever. And he's got to punch down versus pretty much everybody. Um, does that play a factor at all? Uh, it's an interesting idea. I could see several mechanisms that might, lead to that trend. Uh, number one, first of all, is musculature. Um, is it harder to, to exert force at a downward angle than uh, upward when you're throwing a punch specifically? I mean, in general, if you, get, if you have gravity behind you, it's easier to go down than up. But um, in, in the sense of a, a punch going outward, I wonder if that angle, uh, just based on the musculature, is, is different. That's a question probably for a, a physiologist. Um, secondly is the fact that if you're punching down, you're opening up your defense a little bit more rather than punching up. I think it's easier to retract to a defensive position. Um, in that case, maybe these are hypotheses. I don't have data to test this. Um, so what I would, what I might look for is when there is a significant height differential, um, does the jab accuracy drop? Conversely, does your strike defense, uh, change in any way, uh, when you're, distance striking. Um, so that's an important, that would be something I would look into. That's how I would test that hypothesis. Um, but otherwise, you know, when it comes to the nuances of it, I leave it to an expert like Faraz. He's one of the best around. Um, but we could actually look at, it. I haven't looked at that. It's an interesting idea. And that's something we can dig into with the data. Is there going to be a part two to the book? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, I got a text message from Kelly Krieger, uh, my publisher and co-author just recently. Um, so here, here's a funny story about the book. The book was printed on paper that is, I think, four times the density of normal paper because of all the color graphics. There's 136 color images, and that's just the graphs, not the pictures. Um, so we had to print it on very expensive paper. So it is very heavy. Uh, he was building, essentially, uh, a bunker somewhere and decided to see if the book was bulletproof. So he ran a test, a ballistics test with a rifle. There's actually a video of this. I think I posted it at some point of him shooting and trying to figure out how many fightnomics it takes to stop uh, an AR-15 round. And the answer was three. So if you, take, <laughs> if you take three books and strap and rubber band them together and build a little fort with them, you can actually make a bulletproof fort with fightnomics. 
Um, now that was back when he had cases of this stuff lining his basement. And that was a couple of years ago. He said at current pace, it's going to sell out eventually. And I have to think about a reprint. Um, it's also available on Amazon and Kindle and, um, you know, iTunes and Goodreads and all these other places in digital form. Um, so that, that brings me to your original question of, are we going to do of number two? I don't know. Um, I haven't decided yet. I would love to refresh the analysis. I would love to correct all the typos that I made in the first edition. Um, you know, it was a quick first edition. We really rushed it to print, unfortunately. Uh, but we got it out there and we covered a lot of ground. So um, there are new questions, there are new data. There are now two, maybe soon to be three, uh, new weight classes to discuss, the whole women's division. Um, I also have a lot of data on uh, fighter salaries that we created some models around, which factor in the popularity, which came out with some very interesting results. We've submitted a paper academically for that. Um, and then there, there is uh, totally new data, which has to do with certain background information of each fighter stylistically in terms of training um, and various combat sports that is interesting. And I haven't decided, I think, whether or not I want to share that information. So there is a balance between having interesting things that I could share that are, that are uh, enough um, that I can actually easily explain in, on paper and in graph to a, an audience that would appreciate it versus how much is too esoteric versus how much might be so valuable that I might not want to share that information. Um, so there's a lot going into that decision and ultimately it boils down to, I do not have an answer for you yet. I haven't, I haven't decided one way or the other. Boo. I want to see all this information or read. It can help me so much with my career, but anyway, whatever you decide, uh, hopefully it's going to be a positive one for people like myself and, and the consumers out there. Uh, just so you know, and I'm pretty sure I told you this when you first sent me the book, for those that don't know, the book itself is also weatherproof. Why? Uh, Reed actually expedited a, a copy for myself because I think I was going to a UFC event and I wasn't going to be home for approximately six days covering the event. So he ensured to get the book to me before I left. Uh, and I had left the day that I had left. Um, he had sent it to me, I think, two or three days before the day that I was actually leaving. Uh, and I'm like, where is this book? Like, I, I've died. I'm flying to Vegas. It's a three or it's a four and a half hour flight for me. I need something to read. I don't want to put it on anything on my phone. I need to get this book. And he's like, Joe, I sent it. I, I don't know. It says it's there. It was a snowstorm outside. And I went out to my lawn and the person or the delivery party did not ring my doorbell. So it was sitting on my porch under snow for two days. And when I pulled this thing out, I almost lost my mind. I'm about to find out who delivered it. But this is the actual book mint condition absolutely fantastic so it'll stop bullets and it's weatherproof so there you go reed wow yes that is, that's something i did not know about the book i'll have to let <laughs> kelly know that's funny good canadian weather good snow i mean outside right now we do have a little bit of sunshine and uh, the snow is kind of melting but it is canada and as you know reed it could get ugly in about 14 minutes before we even know it it could be cloudy and you know five inches of snow start falling um Let's talk about a few different things here. Uh, I, I do want to get into the uh, the main event and the opening card uh, for Sunday's UFC Fight Night 103, Rodriguez versus Penn. But I also want to talk about the Nevada State Athletic Commission today, to my understanding, sorry for shaking the computer there, today um, we'll be discussing whether or not marijuana is really an issue for fighters and whether or not, you know, to just abolish it. Look, if they want to, if they take it when they're training, that is fine. As long as they don't technically show up, uh, I'm assuming in the combat arena high or stoned, everything should be fine. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, that it's a really interesting question. And for a, a variety of reasons that 
are both well before, during, and after a fight. Um, and so let me preface this by saying I am not a doctor. Um, I sleep next to one, but uh, I am not a physician. So take this for what it's worth. I've looked into it. We've researched it. I was able to look up some papers um, on the subject recently. Uh, but there's you got to break this down into multiple questions. Um, should it be legal in general uh, as a substance for pre-fight testing? And that has more to do with uh, state laws, I think. Um, I am generally uh, very pro-legalization of marijuana. I say that as someone who has never smoked marijuana. I started getting drug tested at the age of 18 um, due to security clearances, and I you know, never had the opportunity. But I say that now living in a state where it is legal, and now it is legal also in Nevada, um, as well as Washington, Oregon, D.C., a few other places. So um, there is a general trend, and I think that's a positive trend. It, it, I think generally from a recreational standpoint, it's fine. So um, when it comes to out-of-competition testing, for that reason, I do not think that it should cause problems. It should not result in a suspension. There is a separate question about what happens during a fight if someone is on a substance. Um, I think the argument is made that uh, because it can have a, a pain reduction effect, it might allow someone to compete that otherwise might not be able to. It might allow someone to do things that they otherwise could not that's a separate, very difficult question. Um, I definitely don't think it's safe to be inebriated or intoxicated in any way when you're entering the cage uh, and competing in a physical sport, especially a combat one. However, um, that's, that is technically a separate question. I mean, that would require a different test. And I don't even think athletes themselves would argue that that's what they're pushing for. I think the general case is that it should be allowable out of, con out of competition. Um, and then there is this other very interesting question about uh, the effect of CBD or cannabis oils on um, neurophysiology spe with, with uh, specific attention to post-concussion syndrome. So uh, they, there is several research studies that have kicked off looking into this. Um, the research is not there. I, if you read articles, many of which occur on very pro- marijuana websites. Uh, I think they're getting a little bit ahead of themselves. I think there was even a headline in Forbes that was like, hey, marijuana is going to solve the concussion crisis. Um, there is, uh, first of all, there, marijuana has actual chemicals in it. It is a real thing. There are neuroreceptors in the brain that respond to that. So something can happen. We have seen situations of people with um, other conditions, epilepsy, see great benefits by using marijuana for medicinal purposes. There is a separate hypothesis that says that the same chem chemicals present in marijuana, not THC, but other ones, are causing some sort of uh, protective effect after a trauma that sort of reduces the amount of damage that our own metabolism does to ourselves. You know, it's, it, it's not always the initial damage to the brain that, does, that causes the, the long-term damage. It's our own body's response to that after the event. And if you can limit that damage after the event some way, somehow, it's like you know, putting a tourniquet on the bleeding and having a scab rather than letting it bleed. Um, we're talking about the brain here. So it's far more complicated. There's a cascade of chemical events. That is interesting. We do not have conclusive evidence that it will do that. Um, there are some animal models, I think, that have shown that uh, in, in various monkeys, um, but we don't know. And there is a quoted test that says survivability for TBIs was much higher for people that were routine marijuana users. Okay, 
granted, you take a bunch of people that were in car accidents, um, and the people that died were generally in their 50s. The people that lived were in their 20s. Those were the cannabis users. There's a big difference. Um, that study was is not really something to hang your hat on. So um, there are several ways to look at this issue in terms of a timeline. Recreationally, if you're in a state where it's legal uh, and it's out of competition testing, it should no longer be relevant. Um, it would be akin to testing for alcohol or tobacco or any other age-controlled substance. When you get to during competition, it's still relevant. We probably should still uh, not allow that. How they execute on that is, I don't know, up to the athletic commissions. Once you get past that, is there a medicinal effect? That's where it becomes really interesting. If you actually find that there is a benefit to treating post-concussion syndrome with marijuana, then it almost becomes somewhat of an obligation to consider this because the big problem right now in athletes that are routinely injured in football specifically, uh, but combat sports would be another one, it's addiction to opiates or narcotics as the primary pain reliever for a significant injury. If we're able to reduce our dependency on those by substituting marijuana, you are shifting the, the balance of power back into the control of the individual uh, away from addictive substances. So that's where it becomes very interesting from a lifestyle standpoint. So um, again, tackle this issue from different parts of the timeline. And I think there are some very real benefits and then still some areas where we need to be cautiously optimistic uh, and also still have some discretion when it comes to during competition. And not to dumb it down for some of the people out there who are very educated on this. Obviously, the THC is the psychedelic, the psychedelic effect, uh, the 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 compound that gets you high. CBD is the one that has the healing properties. Uh, and I almost feel like they're going to come out potentially with an uh, with a, an MMA strain or a combat sports strain, which would be much higher with CBD and lower with THC. Um, Vice versa in terms of outside versus competing and stuff like that. But you mentioned there's a study potentially going on in terms of head trauma, uh, concussive effects, and if CBD uh, will have an effect on that. Um, what, do you know where this is being studied and, and or what their what their end goal is, obviously, to make sure that – or not their end goal is – the actual tests itself, the actual study itself will, will likely try and prove that, hey, you know what, if you've had head trauma before uh, or, if you're suffer, or if you suffer from something similar, uh, not necessarily Alzheimer's, but just something of that nature, CBD can help long term? That's the hypothesis. So uh, take a group of people who have suffered a TBI for whatever reason, whether it was sports related or a car accident or a work trauma, whatever it is, um, take half of them allow them access to a certain chemical. And again, you, you differentiated, you don't have to give them THC. You don't even want them smoking marijuana. There are other health uh, effects of inhalants. So really we're just talking about the chemical, um, the CBD chemical and some of its um, part of that waterfall. Uh, but there are strains or there are strains of marijuana. I think that do have a different balance and, and there are medicinal applications versus recreational. I think you hit that on the head. So what we're talking about here is applying the ones that have a balance that are focused on the CBD, the benefits to the brain um, for mitigating some of that waterfall effect of after you go through an injury, um, some of the calcification, the uh, whatever else is going on. There's a lot more detail there that I can't speak to. Um, if you can stop that chain, chain reaction, is there a long-term benefit to the individual in cognitive function? 
you know, intellectual performance, a variety of things that can be tracked over a long period of time. It requires a pretty big test. You can't go out there and just start giving people concussions and then treating them or not treating them with this and seeing what happens. It has to be a a more passive uh, research study. But as far as I know, they are kicking off, they're underway, but it's the type of thing that's probably going to take a number of years uh, to actually play out. Um, But the problem leading up to this point is that research on this substance has been, because it's a controlled substance, has been very restricted. People had these questions long ago. They just weren't allowed to look into them. Now they're finally allowed to look into them. At least at least we're making some progress in that area. Um, but it, now it's going to take some time for it to actually play out. And you mentioned uh, the missus is the doctor. And I'm wondering, is she pro? And you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. Is she pro marijuana legalization or pro that this is happening? Um, or she just says, you know what? It doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with me. And who's keeping track of the study, you or her? Because I need to contact her if it is her. Um, We looked it up together, actually. Uh, We watched the CNN documentary, or several of them, actually, on on medicinal uh, marijuana. So she is pro, especially when it comes to researching the medicinal benefits of this. Um, There have been some applications in epilepsy that seem to be, you know, I hate the word miraculous, but um, it, it seemed to have caused a very significant benefit to the patient. So that is absolutely worth looking into. Um, and so it's good that we are backing off a little bit of a more of a bureaucratic designation than anything else. Um, it, it just wasn't very practical and realistic. And we have a clear uh, neuro effect of a substance. It's worth looking into. It's worth investigating. So medical research in general should not have their hands tied when it comes to this subject. Absolutely. And I think uh, the CNN documentary, there's two of them actually. And there was one, uh, the one strain, which was called Charlotte's Web, based on a patient, a child named Charlotte. Uh, that was an emotional, that's the one that you're talking about. That was the one that caught my heartstrings and was pulling on my heartstrings. Now, we're going to wrap this up. We're going to have two fights we want to look at uh, fairly quickly here. Your Uber tail the tape, obviously, for the opening bout of Sunday's event. Uh, is John Moraga taking on Sergio Pettis? The check marks on the graph and ladies and gentlemen you can check us out at fightnomics on reed's twitter profile the check marks are almost completely unanimous minus one on the right right hand side of that graphic it seems to be all sergio pettis yeah that that caught my eye obviously i don't normally see uh because there is a lot of noise in this and a lot of back and forth and and different skills it's unusual to see even close to a clean sweep let alone an actual clean sweep i think i've only seen that twice um, and those were blowout fights. Uh, this case, I would be a little more wary. Um, if, if you actually run a full, a full prediction on this, factoring everything in, it's still a fairly close matchup. Uh, the betting odds are also very close. So I think there's um, also an experience level that needs to be factored here. Moraga has been in there, I think, with better opposition than Pettis. Um, I was someone that shorted Pettis early uh, when he fought Alex uh, Caceres, I believe, and lost. Um, He was an enormous favorite in that fight. Um, So I think things have come back to reality. The hype behind him being Pettis' little brother, Anthony Pettis' little brother, has evened out now. Um, So now he's he's able to, I think, fight on his own ground right now. Um, When I look at the numbers, I was surprised. And I will say, I won't go all in on picking Pettis here. I think Moraga is still very game. He's, He's the more experienced guy. Um, and I think it's a lot more even than it appears on paper. This is one of those examples where we see a stacked deck on one side, but I actually think that that's somewhat misleading. 
The main event will see BJ Penn returning to the octagon, returning to competition. Uh, I've been one of those parties that has, has been stating, no, no, I don't want to see BJ Penn come back. Sorry, again, shaking the screen there. Um, I don't want to see BJ Penn come back to mixed martial arts, but to each their own, each fighter will determine whether or not. I just think at age 38, um, he's had his time. I don't think he should be competing against a 24-year-old who's an absolute monster with incredible speed. When I look at your graphic, uh, I guess it looks fairly even, uh, but correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think that tells the story of what potentially could happen in this bout. Yeah, the numbers for BJ Penn are very good, and he earned those against very good competition. The problem is is that that was a long time ago. We're talking years since his last win, um, and he's now 38 years old. That is the wrong side of 35 in MMA. That's really when the downhill uh, starts, um, and he's fighting a guy 14 years younger. I mean, that, that's kind of ridiculous. So um, look at other situations where someone had a swan song type of fight, um, I think recently, of Uriah Faber. They gave him a guy who was same age, similar similar range of, um, of skill. I think that was a, a good way to go out for Uriah Faber. BJ Penn coming back again, and especially given the last performance, I mean, it was a really rough performance for him against Frankie Edgar. Uh, just a brutal one-sided fight. Um, he didn't look good, and now he's coming in against a much, much younger fighter. He is going to be seeing speed that he is not able to respond to. When it comes to aging, remember, um, things like maximal strength, which is just um, your, your muscle's ability to exert force and, and pump iron, that doesn't change much, actually, when you get older and when you're, when you're a man. Um, you're still as strong as you were. Your reaction time, however, is one of the things that does go down with time. And there is another graph that I tweeted that shows who has taken the most head strikes in the history of the UFC without falling down. So granted, on one hand, this is a complimentary graph that says this guy is the toughest chin in MMA. BJ Penn is not only at the top of the list, he is at the top of the list by a long shot. And then there is everybody else. Um, so he has never been knocked down on paper. You know, we have a knockdown ratio of six to zero. So he has knocked other people down six times, never been knocked down himself, uh, either in the distance from a distance or in the clinch. Um, so you got to say this guy is a, a very dur- durable chin, but chins are not something that sustain or even get better. They only go downhill. And when you've taken that many head strikes, um, it, it's not a good thing. When I looked at Robbie Lawler, for example, when I was looking who had been hit the most times in the UFC, Robbie Lawler was right up there against Tyron Woodley. And I was, <laughs> I was sending data to that group saying, listen, this guy is vulnerable. Don't think that just because he's been in some wars and he survived them, that he's going to survive a single clean punch from someone who hits as hard as Tyron Woodley. So uh, I do think there is a lot of risk here. This is a, a strange matchup for a guy coming out of retirement to be given a young up-and-comer like Yair Rodriguez. And he has some unorthodox striking. Uh, if you look at the numbers, he has a strike ratio of 1.5. That basically means he outworks his opponents by 50%. So for every one strike they throw, he throws 1.5 back. So as this round goes on, BJ Penn has a ratio that is below one. He's actually a more hesitant striker. Um, So he's going to be facing someone who is much younger, faster, a little bit lengthier, but negligible, but definitely more aggressive. So the difference in accuracy, even though Penn looks great on paper with his accuracy, that's also because he's been a hesitant striker. He's going to be facing someone who's not going to give him an inch. Uh, So 
the stand-up game here, I think, favors Rodriguez. Uh, he's going to be the more durable one, I think, despite what we've seen from BJ Penn standing up to all these strikes for so long. And the actual chart that Reed was re- was referring to is called the UFC's most durable chins. BJ Penn, like you mentioned, is at number one. Total head strikes absorbed, 1,249. At number two, Max Holloway, get this number, 433. That is a massive difference. So BJ Penn has taken a fair amount of strikes over his career. This event goes down on Sunday. Uh, it's going to be... A solid event, in my opinion. I'm only concerned, and if you just listen to Reed's analysis for this main event, I am concerned for BJ Penn uh, as someone I have known for a very long time. Reed, we're going to wrap this up. Anything you want to say? Because the problem is you and I could probably talk for the next five hours, but we do have other things to take care of. I got to get an article up on Fightful MMA. Uh, anything you want to say before I say goodbye to you? Uh, no, we'll always have something to talk about. I think this card this weekend should be interesting. The main event Depends on what BJ Penn we see show up. Um, He is still a wild card because sometimes he looks amazing, and that's why he was the prodigy. But lately, it's more often than not, he has not looked so good. Um, I do note that he switched training camps. He was at uh, Jackson Winklejohn recently. They are very, very good, uh, not just as a camp, but they are also good strategically, and they are also good at kind of getting their guys into shape and not allowing them to fight on their own, um, whatever, you know, half brain scheme that led BJ Penn to walk around uh, standing upright against Frankie Edgar. So we might see a different Frankie Edgar in the long run. I don't think that that will matter. He's still the prodigy. You'd like to see him at least go out, not on a terrible note. Um, the way Faber did, I, that's not going to happen this weekend. Uh, I think we'll, we'll move on from this era uh, and start getting into 2017. I do think 2017 looks good. New management from the UFC, they have an eye on putting on blockbuster cards. They're, very, uh, in, they're actually financially incentivized to ensure that they do great pay-per-view numbers this year. So we should see some blockbuster cards this year, and that's exciting. Oh, Reed Kuhn dropping some seeds for next week's show, ladies and gentlemen. We will definitely touch on that next week with Reed Kuhn. Reed, as always, thank you very much. Make sure you do follow him online at Fightnomics on Twitter. You can follow yours truly on social media at Showdown Joe. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Lots of knowledge there, especially regarding the whole marijuana thing that will be going down today with, uh, with the Nevada State Athletic Commission. Thank you, everyone. We will catch you on Sunday, Sean Rossap and yours truly, right after the event. UFC, what is it again? UFC Fight Night 103, Rodriguez versus Penn. For now, hope everyone has a wonderful day. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.